When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. I'm talking today with Larissa Fasthorse, author of the new collection that includes the Thanksgiving play and What Would Crazy Horse Do? Larissa, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'd love to hear a little bit about what theater meant to you, maybe in your in your childhood, in your early life. Yeah, um, I actually wasn't a theater person as a kid. Um, I grew up in South Dakota, and I had a crazy, uh, crazy for that area, desire to be a classical ballet dancer, which I'm doing a whole play about. Um, so I was a kind of a alone in a lot of ways, as far as there weren't a lot of people in South Dakota trying to be professional ballet dancers. Um, so I actually, though, found the theater people as my alternative group. So even though I wasn't doing what they were doing, um, I wasn't a theater person. I was running the concessions or I was running the box office or I was doing things like that for all my friends who were theater people. Um, so I was around theater a lot as a kid, but always um, on the side, not as a participator, but as a supporter. Um, the the critic Linda Holmes has a joke about how almost everybody cool could write a chapter in their memoir that goes, everything sucked. And then I met the theater kids. <laughs> right yeah well and where i grew up it was it was they were the arts kids because i grew up in a really small town in south dakota well small it, it's it's considered a bigger town in south dakota but small by the rest of the world there's thirteen thousand people at that time and it, you're the arts kids you know it's so you do theater you do choir you do band you know you, you do all those things um because there aren't there aren't enough people to do like just theater or just you know what I mean like you have to do everything if you do a sport you have to play like four sports because there just aren't enough people to cover everything. <laughs> that's fantastic. My my grandfather is from Mitchell, South Dakota. I don't know if that's near oh, no where you grew up. Of course, yeah. yeah, I know where Mitchell is. Yeah. Um. So so you kind of started being involved. It seems like kind of on the fringes of the theater world. Uh, now you're obviously a, you know, renowned, successful playwright. How did that happen? I mean, what was, what was your journey to from selling concessions to writing plays? <laughs> yeah. So I, I was fortunate that, you know, cause I'd have to see the play about this. I did finally become a ballet dancer as a classical ballet dancer. Um, I did that for 10 years professionally. And um, so, you know, like all ballet dancers, you find yourself, 30 and your body's done and you have, you're retired, you know, and you're like, Oh crap, there's like a whole life left. <laughs> I have to find something to do. Um, and so I went to an organization called career transitions for dancers as here in Los Angeles now where my husband's from and um, career transitions for dancers is now under the actors fund. And it's an incredible organization that understands that you're, you know, 
a lot of people are like 22 and retiring or 24 and retiring and and that you've devoted your entire life to one thing and and just don't have you know any training in anything else and so they really helped me um through a career counselor for several years to find my next chapter and it ended up being writing um which surprised me i always thought i was going to choreograph or teach and those just weren't fulfilling enough after doing other people's work for so long i was ready to do my own to create my own work and I really was craving that creativity. So I started writing in script form because I was here in LA and I started in film and TV. I would say I'm the only like writer in Los Angeles that started in film and TV. And then I got really frustrated with the misrepresentation of indigenous people and I moved to theater um, and I became a playwright. I, I got my first commission um, when I was working at Sundance Theater Lab. I was commissioned by Children's Theater Company of Minneapolis, Peter Brocious, and he asked me to write my first play. I'd always assumed, my husband always said, why aren't you writing theater? And I just assumed because every playwright I knew had an MFA that I had to have an MFA to write theater. Um, I didn't know anything about business. I didn't know one person in it, except that there were all these playwrights that I saw online and they all had MFAs. So <laughs> I was like, well, I can't do that. Um, and then he commissioned the play and I just fell in love. I've said many times, I, I walked in the rehearsal hall and I went, oh, this is Dancers with Furniture. I can do this. And I never <laughs> looked back. That's great. Um, could you talk a bit about the inspiration behind the Thanksgiving play? Yeah, the Thanksgiving play was very um, specific. I write primarily, although I have some historical work, I primarily write around um, the contemporary Indigenous experience. And um, it, it's, there, is a lot, there are a lot of people that really enjoy doing the historical, which we need. We need to learn the correct and honest history of this country. But I'm really more interested in, in actually the future. And so I try to write to the future. So when I wrote the Thanksgiving play, I was really thinking about, um, you know, how do we deal with these issues that we're all having as Indigenous people in this country as a result of all that history? But I had also reached a, a ceiling in theater where I was getting lots of commissions and my commissions were getting first productions, but they weren't getting subsequent productions, which is honestly where you make you know, your money <laughs> is with royalties. And as a playwright, since we're not you know paid salaries or anything. And so I wasn't getting subsequent productions. And the number one reason was people kept saying your plays are uncastable. And that included a play of mine that had one half Native American person in it. In it. And, they, and theaters were telling me that was uncastable. And I was like, wow, that's really horrifying. So I did what actually a lot of writers of color have done. I intentionally created a play that dealt with all the issues I wanted to talk about at that moment, but were but were set. They were four white presenting people, although I very much encouraged um, casting non-white folks in these roles, but four white presenting people in one room. And I was like, if you can't do that American theater, then it isn't casting. <laughs> it's actually right. that you just don't want to do this work. And then we have something else to talk about. Um, and amazingly, I mean, fortunately, I loved the play and, you know, it did everything I hoped it would and more. I'm glad you, you offered that explanation so forthrightly because I was trying to find a tactful way to suggest, did you decide to write a play where you could have indigenous ideas, but, you know, theaters who only knew white actors could cast it. And then you just basically said, yeah, that's exactly what I did. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I was just done. <laughs> I was getting really sure, no, I get it. You know, stuff just was not getting produced and the excuses were so sad. But um, unfortunately, you know, I would say it's my most depressing success, right? Because that means it's true. Yet if you write for white looking folks, you'll get produced way beyond, I mean, a hundred times beyond anything I've ever been produced before. So hopefully now 
you know, it seems to be the case that this is going to open doors for me. I mean, it has opened tons of doors, but I mean, as far as being able to cast um, other folks than white folks in the future. <laughs> yeah. And for folks who aren't familiar with the play, I mean, it is, you're, you're being a, a, a little bit modest, but it it is, it's been one of the most produced, one of the like top 10 most produced plays, you know, several years running now. So yeah, it, it, it definitely seems like you achieved your goal. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I feel yeah, like this, I feel like this play is, is in a sort of emerging, burgeoning genre of sort of like, um, I don't know, satires about, about white people and why they do white people stuff, you know? Um, and I say this as, as a white person, I'm not excluding myself from that group. And I, I had a, a, a thought reading your play, which is it, it sort of reminded me of one of the arguments that Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz makes in uh, an indigenous people's history of the United States, where she basically says that like native people don't fit into the kind of liberal idea of multiculturalism because the idea that, you know, America is a nation of many nationalities and we're, we could all, you know, coexist sort of, erases the basic fact of occupation and settler colonialism that this country is is built on um would you say that the thanksgiving play is leveling a kind of similar or you know compatible critique yeah absolutely i mean you know for sure indigenous people have so many um shall we say issues (laughs) in alignment with you know other um immigrant groups to this country or people who were forced into this country like african-american or black folks um, and then, you know, immigrant, like our Latinx friends and others, um, we certainly have a lot of common causes today. But what we, I think what gets lost so much in the conversation is understanding that indigenous folks, we are not just an ethnic or cultural um, or race-based group. We're an actual politically sovereign group here in this country. We have a political sovereign um, status with the United States government. So we're actual individual government so it's very it although we have some similarities with those folks it's also very different our relationship is so different because we are still on our own lands in our own country independent countries in our sovereign nations that are recognized by the united states government and continue to be recognized as separate it's amazing to me how many people today still don't understand that i have have dual citizenship that i am um a citizen of my sovereign nation and a citizen of the United States, and that that dual citizenship only happened in 1924. Um, that's when Native folks were first made um, citizens of granted citizenship in the United States. So it's very recent; it hasn't even been 100 years yet that we've had citizenship in the United States. So we don't feel, in, you know, as deep a kinship with this particular country as we do with our our independent nations that we've been citizens of, you know, for all time. I interviewed Mary Catherine Nagel for this show, I think last year. Mm-hmm. And one of the things she pointed out is that like the U S government doesn't make treaties with African-Americans. You know, the, you, you don't make a treaty mm-hmm. with a, with, with a group of people that is not a political entity. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I that gets lost a lot because it's interesting. People say things to me like, um, you know, when I'm in these um, BIPOC spaces in theater and someone will say, well, but you know, they'll kind of put down anything about laws or politics or whatever. I'm like, no, no, no. I, I exist because of laws, <laughs> because of treaties, which are laws, you know, like I, I, my sovereign rights are all based on these laws and the United States, because they're like, we don't care about the United States government laws. We don't, I'm like, well, I do <laughs> because they recognize my right as an, you know, an independent nation, a member of an independent nation in this, in this geographic space. So it's very important. It's very different. Um, 
I, I want to turn away from the play just very briefly and, and ask you about mm -hmm. another part of your uh, biography, which is that you helped produce the land acknowledgement for the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Um, yeah. That I feel like that. I don't know if you're writing that play, but I, that sounds like a play to me. Um, what was that experience like? Yeah, that was wild. Um, so I have a little consulting company with my partner, Ty Defoe, and uh, it's called Indigenous Direction. And we have been working with Macy's now. We're actually on our third year. Um, we work with a lot of different companies. Uh, Guthrie we've been working with for quite a while, Western Arts Alliance, uh, APAP, um, Roundabout Theater Company, a lot of different folks. And Macy's um, came to us as a client. Um, Ty uh, knew one of the producers of the parade from just personal life. And they ended up hiring us as consultants to come in and help them. And we said, well, you get, our first year, we said, well, you got to do a land acknowledgement. Um, and they're like, ooh, okay. And it's wild because... You know, theaters are struggling still all these years later with the land acknowledgments. I, I mean, the, the fraughtness over a land acknowledgement. Um, and we said, look, you know, we got to do it. And they're like, okay, all right. And they just did it. And and that was the year, unfortunately, you know, 2020 when COVID took over. And I mean, up to the last minute, we didn't know what the parade was going to be. I mean, it was, it was a lot of scrambling, a lot of, you know, and I don't know if people know this, but it New York people do, but I don't know if other people know that it was basically a fake parade on on that year for television. Um, it the parade was one block long, just it went in front of Macy's, and so you started on the side of Macy's, the float went around the front, and then that was it, and you were done. Um, so it was a is a this interesting thing that you know had all the logistical nightmares that us in performing arts and anyone that produces anything understands. You know when it was changing every day. Um, and so all of that was actually overshadowing more and just, you know, what was going, what we were doing until we got there for the rehearsal the night before and it was so cold. And we had this group of folks that um, we'd written this land acknowledgement and we'd also written the text for um, Hoda um, Kotbi to say uh, some really pointed words <laughs> online that actually, interestingly, they don't have in the recorded segment they put online, but it was said live. Um, about you know about settler i don't remember the exact words right now but about you know settler colonial you know invasion basically <laughs> it was really incredible so you know getting that done making sure that the you know all the performers that were part of it um we had people from um the original thanksgiving tribes and then we also had people from the lanape people from manahata island and made sure they were all had a voice in and what was said and how you know everything was vetted through a, a whole group of people and elders um, and being able to do that with Macy's was really pretty painless, actually, and incredible. And they were an NBC, and they really supported it. And they just did it as we pretty much as we gave it to them and put this on TV. And we're like, ooh, okay, theater. <laughs> we put down the gauntlet here. Falls <laughs> in your court. You know, NBC, yeah, 50 million people can see a land acknowledgement, and they all survived. You can do one in your theater. You know, you can post a plaque, for goodness sake. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I've heard some people and, and not sort of like, you know, ignorant people, but, you know, well-meaning people, sort of leftist uh, aligned mm -hmm. people kind of suggest that a land acknowledgement is sort of silly or even counterproductive because it's basically saying, you know, I acknowledge that I stole your land, but I'm not going to give it back to you. And if you acknowledge that you stole something, but you still insist on owning it, that's, you know, in some ways, almost like a taunting gesture. What would you say to that sort of critique? Of land acknowledgments. Well, that that would be a horrible gesture. Um, that is not what land acknowledgement is at all. Land acknowledgement is a, is a is a step. 
It's one step of many steps. And it, um, it, it is something that has to continue and has to go forward and has to indicate change. And so we, um, we always went uh, into indigenous direction or myself as a personal artist when we work with different theaters, we say, you know, this is just one teeny tiny little step toward things. But I would also say um, you should go online and you need to read um, what people, what indigenous people have said about land acknowledgements. I, you know, I was, there's an incredible um, website that we worked with, um, U.S. Department of Arts and Culture, I think it's called. And they created a really easy land acknowledgement um, toolkit. And that toolkit is uh, accompanied by videos of indigenous people talking about what it meant to them to hear land acknowledgement. And there's one woman who says, you know, I was in a space where I didn't feel safe, you know, in a performing art, or art space, I believe it was. And they said a land acknowledgement. And I suddenly knew, oh, I might have allies here and I might be safe. And I was like, you know what? If if you do it for that one person, that's fine. That's it. You know, that's all we need. If you are making one indigenous person feel safe in your space, why isn't that worth it? You know, we say it's worth it to write to one audience member or to perform for one, you know, person that make one child who may come to the show. Then why can't we say land acknowledgement for one person who might realize, okay, I might have an ally here. I think that's worth it. Yeah. I feel like so often land acknowledgements are sort of um, described as if they're for, you know, white people or other kind of settler descended people in the audience, you know, to kind of get them to think mm -hmm. about their complicity. But, but, you know, what you're saying is that a, maybe a better way to think about it is for any indigenous people who might be in the audience to feel like they're in a, they're in a space where people at least are trying to understand their perspective. Yeah. I mean, I'd actually say both, right. Because you know, performative wokeness. I wrote a play about it that we're here talking about. Um, <laughs> white folks like to, our, our liberal white friends like to talk their way out of doing anything for the greater good. Yes. <laughs> and so. Um, Spoiler alert for the, I, I, for the play. Yes. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, the vast majority of folks in this country have no idea whose land they're on, or maybe they can name a name, but they haven't thought any deeper about that. So if, you know, it's interesting to me how many people are like, oh, land acknowledgement, we're so over it. So yeah, so I would like you to pull just 20 people randomly in your audience and find out how many can name the people whose land they're on and ways to pay that back and the ways to do reparations. And I will bet the vast majority of them can't do that. So until we get a next step, I'd love us to be at the next as a nation or even just as a field in the field of theater is very small. I'd love us to all be at the next step, but we're not. We aren't even close to the next step. Um, and again, this is landing knowledge is one teeny tiny step, but it's one teeny tiny step on a a path of steps that I would love for us all to be much further down. Like oh, we're also past land acknowledgement because we've taken so many better steps. Mm -hmm. um, I read an article recently that was a, a sort of looking at like affluent white approaches to racial justice and the, the highest ranking actions that affluent white people thought they should be taking to sort of create a racially just nation were things like reading books by authors of color and, you know, listening to voices of people of color rather than like, 
you know, actually participating in Black Lives Matter marches or writing to their congressmen or, or things like that. Could you talk a bit more about this? I mean, without, I, I, I don't know, this place been out a couple of years. <laughs> like, uh, I, I feel like we can a, a, a little bit talk about what happens in the play, which is, yeah, like you kind of referred to, uh, the, the kind of four white people creating this play end up deciding that the best thing that they can do to sort of not step on anyone else's toes is to literally present a blank stage. <laughs> and that does sort yeah. of feel like a kind of reductio ad absurdum of a certain kind of performative wokeness. Yeah, you know, I actually, you know, I struggled with the ending of the play and I changed it a lot of times. So yeah, sorry if you haven't seen it yet. Um, but I've changed it. I changed it a lot of times. You know, how do we end it? What do they do? do they, you know, and I was actually in New York talking to an artistic director. I had, you know, went out for dinner with an artistic director while we were in, I think, one of the workshops for um, Playwrights Horizons. And, um, and, and you know, one of our best, well-meaning, liberal theater director people. And he looked at me with all sincerity. And he said, you know what, Larissa, you know what I've, you know, he told me about all these things he's been involved in. So, you know, I finally realized really what I have to do as a white male, straight white male, no less, the straight white male is I just, I finally get it. I just need to do nothing. And it's like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> He's like, no, seriously, <laughs> that, that is the best thing I can do. Yeah. It's nothing. Because if I do anything, I'm just, you know, I'm just in the way or it's my voice or whatever. I'm like, no, 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 no. So I said, well, I, so does that mean you're going to give up your artistic directorship and your salary and give it to someone else, uh, to a person of color? He's like, well, no. And I was like, okay. Right. So sure. you're, <laughs> but you, you got to do something. <laughs> You're still holding all the toys. <laughs> you got to do something to distribute no, them better, you know? I think what you're misunderstanding is that giving up his salary would be doing something, right? He right. has to do yeah, nothing. You're right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It was just incredible. And he just, he literally just kept standing on that. And, and I was like, wow, they really, they're really down for that. And they, and they've convinced themselves, like you said, they've convinced themselves that if I read a bunch of books and watch a bunch, listen to a bunch of podcasts, no offense to the podcast we're doing now, um, that that makes me good. <laughs> it's like, well, can do a little yeah. more than that. <laughs> it, it's very individualizing and, and kind of moralizing. Mm, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, wow. Now, I think one of the things that's kind of surprising about this play is that, I mean, it is, it does provide a very pointed critique of you know, essentially the demographic that makes up most theater audiences. And yet it has resonated very widely. Like, why do you think this play has had, I mean, obviously, you know, it's a very good play. It's very funny, et cetera. But why do you think this play has resonated so widely? Um, you know, I did, I, I'm always very clear that I, I call it a comedy within a satire. Like, I'm very clear that it's not just a straight satirical play. Like, I don't enjoy going to the theater and being like banged over the head with something, you know, and just made to feel responsible for two hours like I don't enjoy that um I think you know because we all have privilege in different ways and I certainly have lots of privilege and growing lately and, and you know I'm really fortunate that I that I have all these privileges but I don't want to go to theater and just be like yelled at for it for two hours so for me it was really important that this play is fun it's it's funny and it's fun and that it unifies audiences in a weird way I mean yes it there it it, it you know, as you said, the satire is real. Um, and it's, and it's pretty, you know, I think it's quite clear, but it's also just a lot of fun. And that was important to me. I mean, I love theater audiences. I love that, you know, they give me a job, <laughs> you know, all, all people that come to theater are giving me a job, paying my salary, not that I have a salary, but you know, are paying my way in the world. 
And, and so, you know, I, I wanted to be sure they had fun and they enjoyed themselves and that they got to come to a place with their fellow humans and laugh. I mean, there's nothing like laughter. It, it's just the most incredible feeling. Um, I, I've mentioned this before, but I was one of the last previews um, right before in, at Playwrights Horizons um, before the uh, New York Times and everybody was coming to review it. I, I always sit on the side of the house and watch the audience. Um, once we get in, once we have audiences, I never see the stage again. I always watch the audience to see what they're doing and how they're reacting. And I was sitting there and there's in the very first couple pages, there's um, what I call the unifying joke. It's a joke that is not against anyone. It's just a dumb, funny joke. And um, and I, I have it in there to make sure everybody knows this play is for you. And this play is, is my, you know, this laughter is my gift to you to all laugh together as an audience, whoever you are and wherever you're coming from. And I remember when that, that first unifying joke went and the whole audience just exploded together. And I'm watching all these people, you know, we've done a really good job of Players Horizons getting a pretty diverse group of folks into the audience at these previews. And I saw this group of people all laughing together. And I was like, oh, I remember saying to myself, this is the sound of your life changing. Um, because I knew that I'd done what I wanted to do. I'd wanted, I wanted to make it a space for everybody and yet still um, get across the things I was trying to get across about the indigenous experience today. Right. And it, I mean, it is, I think that the, the fact that it's a fun play is, is key. I think I have definitely experienced, you know, in going to see plays in the last several years that were plays that I felt you know, politically aligned with and that were excellent in many ways, but just at a certain point felt like they were like mad at me for being there and watching them. And that's like yeah. <laughs> very uncomfortable feeling, you know? Right. Like, well, and you know, I, I, think know, I paid 30 bucks. Like, right. Well, and we forget, like, I don't know. I'm surprised at how often I, I, people, actors learn quickly. Don't complain about the audience to me. I mean, these people are giving, because I, I guess, because I didn't grow up a theater person, right? I grew up an audience member. So I'm like, these people are giving money, which they spent, a lot of hard work earning. They're giving up time, which is their most important resource. They're giving up space with their children. They're giving up, you know, they could be doing really cool things right now with their family, but they're here. And so like, don't disrespect them. Don't not appreciate them. Don't hurt them. <laughs> you know, they're giving you the most valuable thing they have, which is time. So, you know, don't yell at them. If they if they need to take a nap, you know what? Maybe they're really freaking tired from earning the money to come here. They need a nap. Like, that's not that's not on you. Like, you, you whatever. You do your job. They're going to do what they want to do. It's, it's our privilege to get to have them in the audience paying for us to do what we love to do. My my first job out of college was I did a, an AmeriCorps program in Providence and occasionally some of the local theaters would like give the people in our program free tickets, which was great. But like there were some days when I had like worked a like, you know, 10 or 11 or 12 hour day at a middle school and then I went to go see a play and it just was boring. And oh, yeah. I was like so mad. Like I was so angry that like that was, you know, because like when you when you work a job that is like a, you know, a demanding Mm -hmm. you know, a time consuming job, you can really only do one other thing a day. And it's like, oh, that's the thing I do today. Like I, I didn't go grocery shopping because I was seeing this play and it isn't good. Like, I feel like people yeah. don't appreciate how, I don't know, I don't want to call it rude, but like kind of rude that is. Oh yeah. I agree completely. I'm like, you know what? It's okay. And, and they don't have to like it. Like if they would rather take a nap, like great, this is a beautiful place to take a nap. Like Thanks for coming. I'm glad we provided that for you. Yeah, I, yeah. Actors learn quickly. Do not complain about audience members to me, or if they want to get up and walk around, or if they want to talk, or if they, we're not holding their attention. That's fine. 
that's great. They should be themselves. You know, I, I advocate a hundred percent for like theaters being very raucous, loud places um, where people can come and go and do as they please and, and be happy. Like it shouldn't be something where we hold them captive, you know, <laughs> and that's what we've done in theater. 99% of theaters feel like little prisons. You go to prison for two hours. Even if you love the piece, you're still in prison with all these rules and all these, you know, you can't move, you can't get up, you can't go to the bathroom without permission, you can't talk, you can't, you know, you look straight ahead, don't talk to your neighbor, don't, you know, it's like, it's just horrible. Why we, why do we celebrate that as like the standard? <laughs> you know, I would much rather theaters be crazy, raucous, fun places where people are having a great time. I don't know a, a lot about traditional indigenous performance practices, but it's my mm-hmm. sort of I don't know, maybe naive understanding that the relationship between the performer and the audience is is, is a, a lot more fluid than than it is in, you know, at Playwrights Horizons or something like that. Do you think, is is that an influence on your thinking on this issue at all? Um, you know, it's all over the map, again, because, right, we're, you know, hundreds, hundreds, potentially at one point, thousands of different cultures in this geographic space we call America now. So it's very different, you know, um, where I grew up, say, Lakota traditional uh, theater is um, done around fires. It's done very, it's done very much the way I do theater <laughs> in communities now. When I'm working with Cornerstone Theater Company, it, um, the, you'd we'd all get together at different times of the year, and you'd have all these fires all over the villages, and you'd go from fire to fire, and different stories were being told in different ways with music, with dance, with text, and you could travel from story to story and 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 learn different, you know, see all these different pr- performances. Where, for instance, the first time I went to a Pueblo feast day in a Pueblo in um, uh, New Mexico, I was shocked. I mean, it's very formal. There's costuming. There's tons of rehearsal beforehand. I mean, it's a large rehearsed, you know, event. Um, there's very specific places that people stand, very specific places people perform, times it has to be done during the day, all these things. And they're very long pieces, you know, so it's it's very different. Um, if you're talking about the Kumeyaay people or the Kuya people down here, in Southern California, they do these bird songs. Their bird songs were call and response, they were interactive. And so the singer would sing a line to the people and the people would sing a line back to tell mm. them which direction they wanted the story to go. And it, and so the stories could change and they went for 48 hours straight. I mean, this you talk about <laughs> durational theater. Wow. <laughs> like This is like these pieces, they wove these singing pieces, these operas basically that were call and response operas through the community for 48 hours. I mean, it's just incredible. So we have like really wide, incredible theatrical forms that are indigenous to this land. Unfortunately, they haven't been canonized and they haven't been, I think, um, I don't know what that is, studied enough in academia to to like make them quote legitimate. Um, and mm-hmm. so we don't learn them in the same way that um, I've been fortunate to learn because all these different communities have invited me in to learn about their forms. So then I try to use these different forms within what I do in, in you know, Western theater. I try to sneak them in wherever I can. Mm-hmm. Um, one character in the play that I, I found very funny was the character of Alicia, who is this actress who's brought in by the, the, the I guess we haven't really described even the, the, the plot of the play very much, but basically there's... <laughs> Three three people who are devising a performance for a, a Thanksgiving assembly, 
uh, at a local school and they bring in Alicia because they believe her to be Native American, but she turns out to not be, but she does have a headshot in some kind of a headdress or something. So, so that was the sort of confusion. Turquoise and braids. So obviously. Oh yes, 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 obviously. <laughs> the Native people are the only people who wear turquoise. Um, yes. And, and this character is very funny, but also um, she's very dumb and that's very clear. And she even sort of prides herself on her, uh, her simplicity. Have you gotten any kind of criticism for this character? Uh, no, actually, I haven't. <laughs> she's also my favorite character. So, um, you know, I, I think she's one that I will say, um, interestingly, I've, I've been involved in a lot of the productions in the first couple of years of this. And, you know, she's the one that women really struggle with the most, right, to portray because she's seemingly dumb, but also she's the heart of the show. You know, she is the heart of this play. She's so purely exactly who she is without any apology. Um, and I, I just, I love that about her. I remember, um, I, I've always wanted to be Alicia. She's so confident in who she is, exactly who she is right now. She doesn't need to be no more. She doesn't need to be something else. She's, she's like the, she is the ultimate, like just Zen master, you know, she just, she is in each moment and she's fine with it. And she's also though a product of misogyny and a product of a world that it, that judges her. Yeah. Yeah. A world that, yeah, she's from Los Angeles and she's a world that judges her primarily by her looks. And so she has learned to take that and really weaponize it in a kind of fantastic way. I mean, she just uses it openly and she's fine with it. And I just, I, I've never had that kind of confidence. I'll <laughs> be like with my physicality. Um, so I, I admire that deeply in Alicia. Um, but she's also got this incredibly pure heart because she just is, she, she's, I always tell um, actors I'm working on, with them. she's without guile she's just she just is doing what she's doing in each moment and if the moment is people find her attractive and she can get something from that fine she'll do that and i just find it really fascinating i love her she's one of my favorite characters um i really struggled with her for a long time because i didn't want to make her something that would make people mad um and so i i struggled with her and then i was on this flight i was on an american i mean a southwest airlines flight in arizona coming home from working on a show there and there was this, um, you know, you know, you, you board, sit wherever you want. And um, so there's, is the end, we're waiting to take off. We're obviously waiting for someone, they're holding. And there's only middle seats left, of course. And this young blonde girl gets on with this ASU sweatshirt. I assume she's, you know, you know 1920. Blonde, you know, all American girl, blonde, blue eyed, you know. Yeah, I'm, chest, I'm from Phoenix, really Larissa. Attractive. I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Yes, you know exactly who. There you go. So she's that girl. <laughs> she's got all the things, right? And she gets on her boyfriend. She and her boyfriend get on. And he just jumps into some metal seat. And she goes to the row in front of me. And she looks at like a totally normal looking 50 year old guy in a suit sitting at the window. And she's like, and she looks at him with just complete trust and ability in, in herself, trust in her own abilities. And she just says to the man, I need to sit there. I don't sit in the middle seat. And I saw the guy, like I could see his face because I was in the aisle and he was like wrestling with himself. And he's like, I'm sorry, what? She's like, I don't sit in the middle seat. And, and she wasn't being bitchy. She was just being honest. She doesn't, she doesn't sit in the middle seats. And, and, and this guy, I can see him just like fighting himself. It's like watching some kind of superhero thing where something's taking over his body, you know, and, and he's trying to do the right thing, but he can't. And he just gets up and I can see he got out and let her in and I could see his face. He was so bewildered with what he was doing. And she sat in the window and was perfectly, and then rang for snacks and was perfectly happy. And, and like, 
she had no, like, no one had ever said no to her. Like, no, she's so confident. And so that's when Alicia really, like, came into focus with me. I'm like, she wasn't being a bitch. She wasn't being mean. She wasn't being pouty. She wasn't whining. She just has never had anyone say no. And I was like, wow. And she's sort of, what that's like. in a way, she's sort of the antidote to the disease that all the other characters are suffering from. Like, she's, she's completely yeah. not you know, tortured by the contradictory demands of multicultural liberalism. She's just, you know, if you yeah. wanted to play an Indian, she can play an Indian. I had, I, I recently had a production of one of my plays where one of the characters is an Asian American woman. And we had so many actors contacting us and saying, you know, I know I'm not Asian American, but I know how to play Asian American. And it's like, guys, come, it's right. 2022. Like we can't be doing this, but, but no, I mean, there are people like that. And, yeah. Yeah, um, I, I saw that when I was in LA, I had actresses ask me to look at the Native American headshot. And I was, and these were like black folks, Latinx folks, white folks, you know, to make sure it looked authentic. And I was like, I'm sorry, wait, what? <laughs> the, the way to look authentic is to be Native American. <laughs> like, right. just, but it's a thing and their agents have them take these shots of all these different nationalities. It's, they still do it. Um, there are kind of these short interludes between the, sort of main scenes that are apparently closely based on actual curriculum relating to native people. Um, could you talk about yeah. kind of why those are in the play and how you found them? And I mean, they're very, they're very funny in a kind of gallows humor way. Yeah. These interstitials, I, I um, you know, I was just writing this play and I, I, I realized, so I grew up um, in a, in South Dakota, what was called the um, era of reconciliation which was uh, now I'm like, wow, people can't say reconciliation today, but back in the eighties, you know, like the state was working on that. Um, so we didn't have, we never had Columbus day. We never had, um, you know, any of these, uh, we never did Thanksgiving pageants. We never did any of that stuff. So I thought, Oh, well, I'm working with educators who do this stuff. So I should look up what these are. I've never been in one. I've never seen one. I was horrified. <laughs> I just started Googling like school, you know, like YouTubes of parents put up of their kids, you know, whatever Thanksgiving show. I couldn't believe it. I was just like, what? And you know, the dates on these things are today. <laughs> you know, like well, when I was writing this, you know, six years ago, uh, I was like, how is this possible that people are still doing these unbelievably offensive um, little school shows? And, and this is what we're indoctrinating children with, even from the most basic. So, so what these interstitial scenes do is they start with the little people, preschoolers and go through high school now. And, and, and I, so I took, you know, inspiration, I took pieces of each of these actual um, things that people are still doing in classrooms, and I put them in each age. And I, I think, you know, it's funny, because the, you know, the little preschool one, even that, one could say, oh, how bad is it? It's like, well, it's actually really bad. You know, you're, you're, you're training from three years old, that it's a, it's the 12 days of Christmas, but it's about around, and for some reason, it's the 10 days of Thanksgiving. I don't know why it's not 12, but it's 10. And, and, and so it's these, um, the pilgrim, the native people giving things to the pilgrims, which you think, oh, well, sure, that's Thanksgiving. The native people came and gave money. Well, any no, that happened, but B, you know, it's, it's training little white children that little children of color should give them everything. <laughs> and they should, you know, so we start from like three saying here, everything should be given to the white people and they should have everything you own. And that makes the colored little native people happy, you know? <laughs> and it's like, wow, we just start with something that seems, it seems pretty innocuous at first. And then you're like, wow, this is horrifying. 
Um, and, and so, yeah, those, those, I couldn't believe them. So we put them in and actually, and then added comments for the, from teachers of how they use these things or what their students liked, like that I find these YouTube comments and Pinterest. I went to a ton of Pinterest boards. Oh my gosh, horrifying. Um, and, and found all these comments from people. And so we used that stuff in the show. The, the distance between... The distance, the, the distance between Pinterest boards and just like full on fascism is shorter than one would expect. <laughs> it really is. You're right. Never heard it put that way, but absolutely true. <laughs> um, we've we talked a lot about the Thanksgiving play, which obviously you know is is probably what you're best known for at this point. But I also want to talk about what would Crazy Horse do, which I really enjoyed and is a, a is a much darker. And, and, you know, I mean, both plays are unsettling, but I found it sort of profoundly uh, disturbing play. And it's, it's, it's asking sort of really fundamental questions about how our country has come to think about race, ethnicity, culture, uh, et cetera. And you write that it's based on an actual event. Could you tell us kind of what that actual event mm -hmm. was? Yeah. So I was, um, this, this play I wrote quite a while ago in um, the Center Theater Group Writers Workshop here in Los Angeles. And um, I was trying to decide what I wanted to write about. I'd, I actually picked something around um, dementia and Alzheimer's. My um, kind of patron aunt, um, favorite aunt had, had passed away. And actually now we have a lot of dementia in our family. And so I was gonna, I was doing that. And then I had to take a trip home to South Dakota. Have to, I, I took a trip home to see my family in South Dakota. And we were going through the state museum in here and um, I saw this little, I, I've been to this museum. I used to go there every single day because it was right in it, the old museum used to be next door to my dad's office where he worked. So, and between the junior high and my dad's office. So every single day I'd go into this museum and look at stuff and play in the museum um, when I was in junior high. And amazingly, there was this case of strange collection of things. There's a clan hood and a lot of odd things. Um, and I saw this little poster that I'd never, never noticed before. And it was about a huge Ku Klux Klan gathering happening on the border of South Dakota and Iowa. And the big, you know, the, the well, I can't remember what they're called right now, but like the Grand Wizard of the Klan was gonna be there. You know, these really important people, Klan important, you know, whatever that is, <laughs> you made it famous, I don't know. But Klan important people were gonna be there and there's this whole day event. And the big culmination, the, the entertainment for the night was a Native American powwow with actual Native Americans for your enjoyment. My mind just exploded. I took a picture. I said it at CTG. I'm like, I'm changing my play. And they're like, absolutely. Um, so yeah. I, I started looking into it and I started talking to folks about this and finding out, you know, trying to find descendants who danced in this powwow and what had happened. And, and that's where the inspiration for this play started from. It was like, who are these people that would be putting on a Native American powwow for the Klan? And, um, and I started there. And then, you know, again, brought in a lot of contemporary indigenous issues. Um, and this was quite a while ago. This was, I wrote this, I want to say seven, eight years ago, maybe. And so, um, you know, this is, and so the, you know, this branch of the clan, when I started looking into it and looking at, you know, who the clan was today, you know, the branch of the clan that I, I was dealing with, I, I, I talked to this gentleman, Michael, in um, new member services of the clan, and he was really like very open and helpful and, and, it, and they were so terrifying because they're perfectly lovely, nice people. And we corresponded. I, I decided not to give him my phone number, but we corresponded on by email for like a year and a half. And, um, and he was, you know, so open about how open they were. And so this is pre-Trump, pre all that. And I mean, once Trump got elected, I just wanted to be saying, get a t-shirt that said, I, I told you so. Um, because, you know, they were political lobby. They had this particular branch had people as 
registered lobbyists in every single state in the nation and in DC they had you know really important PAC you know very you know respected PACs that were giving money to people they were you know they're doing incredible work mm -hmm. <laughs> really well organized in all over our nation and we didn't even realize it that they were quietly preparing and here we are <laughs> yeah. I think that this play and the Thanksgiving play I mean, obviously, they both deal with Native issues, but they're also both plays about white people. And they're kind of the white people in the Thanksgiving play and the white people in What Would Crazy Horse Do are kind of opposite ends of a spectrum in terms of how does a contemporary white person deal with their whiteness, which is in the Thanksgiving play, do nothing. And in What Would Crazy Horse Do, you know, embrace it and, and say, this is my culture. And the way that I'm going to fit into contemporary multicultural America is I'm going to say, you know, I'll respect your culture and you respect mine. And we are going to separate the races and prevent any mixture between them. Not, you know, ostensibly not out of any sense of uh, superiority, though that's obviously there, but on the idea that, you know, my culture is distinctive and needs to be preserved. And that is a argument that is kind of uncomfortably close to, I don't know, certain liberal notions of multiculturalism. Yes, it is. <laughs> I, I realize I'm yeah, not asking I, a lot of questions. I apologize <laughs> for that. I'm just making observations about your play. Okay. And... That's all right. No, absolutely. But I think that's what, I mean, that seems to be, I, I, I think that's intentional in the play that, that you're, yeah. you picked up on the way that white supremacists have gotten very good at phrasing what they say in a way that sounds kind of similar to, you know, what, I don't know, the Black Panthers or, some, some other group advocating for specific ethnicity would say. What does that tell yeah, us about kind of where also, we are? Well, and the, I will say that also speaks very specifically to the indigenous issue, right? So because we've been, you know, forced by the federal government to quantify what it means to be indigenous and what it means to belong, how do I belong to the sovereign nation? The government, you know, as part of this whole treaty process to make me in part of, a member of a sovereign nation, forced on us this some sort of quantifiable system based on literally no science, <laughs> which is amazing, um, of blood quantum and, and, and different ways of, of identifying who we are. And so we've had that system forced on us. And unfortunately, a lot of Native people have internalized, you know, a couple hundred years of it have internalized that and internalized, you know, blood and, and biology uh, being a definition of who you are. And so it's a constant issue for us because we, you know, not all of us defined um, your identity through biology way before the white folks came here. Um, and so what, what makes you who you are is a fundamental question to everybody, but it's really constantly being pushed on Native people. It's, it's our right to healthcare. It's our right to where we live. It's our, our right to so many education and so many things in this country based on trees, based on no science, but a forced um, definition of who we are based on blood, blood quantum. And now, I mean, everybody has, you know, not everybody, but everybody has access to these, you know, pseudoscientific genetic tests that can tell you exactly what percent, you know, Northern European, et cetera, you are. I mean, do you feel like that in, it has some of the same issues that you're talking about with, with this pseudoscience of blood quantum? Yeah. You know, I had this really fascinating, um, I was in this talk, I think it was last year online with um, a, a geneticist and um, neuroscientist who is at, was visiting at UMass and, and they had us both on to talk. And I can't think of his name right now. Save my life. You can Google it. Um, anyway, he's an African-American or black man doing this work, and he's taking it upon himself to correct the science of DNA. He's like, you know, here's the problem he was explaining, and, and I can't, I will get it all wrong and not, and so I'm going to very generally, but he's saying basically it's all 
like a lot of sciences, it's based on white supremacist assumptions. So even how we're reading these DNA tests is wrong. So he said, you know, we're reading it based on faulty science saying native people could not have been here because we say they were here and then manifest destiny isn't a thing and all that. So we're basing it on science that says the only way any humans could have existed on this entire two continents is if they came over the Bering Strait. That's it. There's, that's one direction, one way, no one else could figure it out. So starting with that science, uh, that faulty science saying that somehow no one got to this mass, these two massive continents without that one little land bridge, um, then they base DNA on that. So like we're, he's, uh, he's going through actually and testing, DNA testing every nation on this continent and saying, you know, let's start with who they actually are and base DNA on that as opposed to basing it on faulty white supremacist science that we needed to uphold manifest destiny and our right to be here and take over this nation, this continent. Um, and so it's really fascinating. He can go much more in detail and go on and on about it. That was a really bad summary of you know the idea of, of what he's saying. But he's saying that you know so much of this DNA that we're doing now is actually wrong because it's based on faulty assumptions white supremacist assumptions. And you'll you'll hear people argue, you know, that against native sovereignty, for example, by saying, well, they're not from here any, anyway. They came over 5,000 years ago or something like that, right? Yeah, which, you know, uh, again is, you know, as you go back, is based on all kinds of faulty things. It's not actually science. <laughs> There's a lot of, you know, certainly people came from all kinds of areas and the, you know, the human, you know, humankind has migrated all over the planet as people have come to the, these shores. Um, and that has happened, but you know, the, the interesting um, narrow idea that somehow millions and millions of people could only arrive at this massive piece of land in one way. Mm -hmm. um, I think we can all agree is probably not the soundest basis of all of this. <laughs> and that right. maybe there are other ways. Right. Because, I mean, you know, people made it to Hawaii, which is, you know, halfway mm -hmm. between Asia and North America. So if, if they could make it there, yeah. I guess it stands to reason they could make it the rest of the way. Is that kind of what you're implying? Yeah, exactly. I and mean, people can come from, all, you know, yeah, across both directions. People can come from Africa across. People can come from the Pacific. You know, there's, there was... There was so much, um, you know, it's fascinating when um, I was speaking, I was doing a play with the uh, Tongva and Keech and Tatavian people and such here in the Los Angeles Basin. And I was talking to one woman who was especially involved in their reviving a lot of their um, uh, nautical traditions here in Los Angeles. And she said the first time some folks came from the Pacific in one of their traditional um, boats, I think these particular folks, I'm going to get wrong, but I want to say they were Maori and they came over and, and the Maori are, you know, they were founded from other Pacific islands who ended up in New Zealand, Aotearoa and became Maori, you know, so it's all these blending of different Pacific cultures, right? This happened all across the Pacific and all these different island nations. Well, the first time they arrived in one of their traditional boats, everybody here just started crying. They had the same symbols on their, on their traditional wow. boats here in California. They had the same um, way of navigating, you know, all these things were this, exactly the same. Like, I mean, they, they said there were symbols that were identical, you know, on their boats and things. And so, you know, the idea that only white people figured out how to get across the ocean just seems highly improbable. Mm -hmm. Well, and <laughs> I guess, anyway. I guess that's kind of what leads to what is the kind of incorrect common assumption, both of this sort of 
you know, liberal identity politics that's very concerned about cultural appropriation and also the Klan, what they both miss is that kind of cultural exchange is inevitable and has happened forever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it absolutely has. And that we all, you know, that and the understanding that <laughs> that how much of like their beliefs, I think this is, you know, what I often say in my plays is I hope to leave you with more questions than answers. And I hope that you're wondering at the end of both of these plays, you know, in diff about different topics, but saying, wait, why do I believe that's true? Because that's really what I'm trying to get to is that our fundamental basis, the fundamental like historical taught in school foundation of, of this country called America isn't necessarily true. <laughs> you know, what they've taught us was for reasons and was what they've taught us was to uphold a particular, particular political ideals. And, and, we have this reverence in this country for things that were written down. Um, and, and I keep saying to people, people in 1870 could write lies as people can today. Like <laughs> it, 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 they didn't have truth quills. They didn't have, you know, like they could write down a lie or they could write spew things or they could print the original printing press did not have some kind of truth serum on it. They could only print true things, you know? So it's fascinating how we, we discount in this country oral history for, from cultures that did not have a written language. We say, well, that can't be true. We can't trust that. But because somebody wrote this down in English, it must be true. And therefore we will now teach it in the school. I just want people to say, you know what? Maybe, maybe it all wasn't true. And I need to start looking into what the truth is. We're almost out of time, but I, I just I wonder if that's part of your answer when people ask the inevitable question playwrights always get, which is why is this story a play? Is it a play because plays are a form of oral storytelling and you're sort of trying to get people to value that form of, you know, communication as highly as, as written communication? Honestly, I, see, again, now this is going to make every theater person mad at me, but because I wasn't a theater person growing up, like I do theater because that's who gave me the opportunity to do mm -hmm. things, to talk to audiences in the way I want to speak to them. You know, I'm very fortunate now, um, amazingly six months before the pandemic, I went back to film and television. So I had, you know, I was very fortunate that I had something to sustain me through the pandemic where when all the theaters were closed and it was so horrible for our field. Um, you know, so they've now given me the opportunity, film and TV has now given me the opportunity to tell stories the way that I want to with, you know, cultural rigor and, um, and and proper representation. So I'm doing that as well as theater now. And I'll, I'll be honest, I mean, theater just gave me the chance to do it. And I'm eternally grateful. And I love theater. And I am a theater person now, for sure. I go to a stupid number of plays. But I will, you know, talk to audiences and, and try to get these ideas out in any medium I can. Hmm. It doesn't have to be theater, although I love theater very much. <laughs> Well, Larissa Fastroyce, thanks so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts. It was a real pleasure to get to read your two plays and, and to get to talk with you about them. I really appreciate it. And I hope, you know, lots of people go and because you can read them now. You can go to TCG Books and read these plays. So, yay. That's the part I didn't <laughs> say. It. Yes. Out now from TCG Books. <laughs> Great. Thank you. I really appreciate it.